Well, let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, it is with that trust in you and trust in your word that we eagerly come into your presence this morning. We trust in the gospel. We're thankful that we are accepted by a holy God, not because of what we've done, not because of our intelligence, not because of our virtue, not because of our good works or our personal sacrifices. We are accepted because of Jesus, because of his life, his death, his resurrection. And it is that truth of the gospel, that one gospel that gives us hope and joy and peace. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning trusting that you will continue to grow us by uh, your grace. You'll continue to use your word to strengthen our faith and mature us in our faith and equip us for life and ministry. And so, Lord, we, we ask for your help this morning, that you would give us an attentiveness to your word, that you'd give us a hunger for the truth. And I pray that your spirit would encourage us and confront us, convict us if needed, and lift our eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see today. So, Lord Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you all this morning to see all of you here today. A little smaller group, uh, but glad that you braved the first snow of the year to come out and worship with us. I want to say a big thank you to Dawson. I don't know if he's in here or wandering around in the hall somewhere, but Dawson came and cleared all the, uh, all the sidewalks off for us, so thank you, Dawson. We appreciate that, uh, but good to see all of you guys, and I'll send a greeting as well. I, I know we have more people than normal probably watching from home, and I'll even say good morning to one church member who sent me a picture of the beach in Florida where he's sitting this morning. So even good morning to you uh, on this Sunday, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. You can turn to Luke 11 this morning, and in a surprising turn of events, total depravity has actually been in the headlines of our national news recently. And I'm not talking about examples of total depravity. Yes, we see that all the time, uh, don't we? Whether it's Hollywood or Hamas or any of the other crazy stuff going on in our world, we see plenty of examples of total depravity. But I'm talking about the actual doctrinal claim has been in the headlines. The sinfulness of man has been in the news. Several weeks ago, a man named Chris Johnson, he's a a congressman from Louisiana. He was recently elected speaker in the U.S. House of Representatives. And Mr. Johnson, according to the news media, identifies as a Christian and a Southern Baptist at that, which is causing some heads to explode because apparently, you won't believe this, Mr. Johnson actually holds to some basic Christian beliefs. In fact, CNN recently dug up some old audio clips trying to incriminate him that record him saying things like this that abortion is truly an American holocaust, and that humans are inherently evil and need to be restrained by the government. Now, this is just too much for some people to stomach. Really, that humans are inherently evil? In fact, White House press secretary, I love this, Jen Psaki, speaking of Johnson, she lamented, the Bible doesn't just inform his worldview, it is his worldview. And while she meant that as a criticism, I don't think she could have paid him a higher compliment than to say that the Bible is his worldview. While these truths are maybe horrifying to modern sensibilities, things like original sin, things like total depravity, that humans are inherently evil, these are basic Christian beliefs. And if people are offended by Mr. Johnson's statements, wait till they hear some of the things that Jesus had to say. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is engaging with people who are hostile to him, people who are unwilling 
to accept the truth, unwilling to believe that he is the Messiah, unwilling to recognize him as the son of God, unwilling to, to receive his message that he's bringing the kingdom of God to bear, this good news. They were unwilling to repent and humble themselves before Christ. And so as Jesus confronts their unbelief, he makes this point clear, that such unbelief, that kind of resistance to Christ, evidences the basic problem of our human condition. Unbelief simply evidences our fallen nature, the problem of our human condition. And in our text today, Jesus gives us two descriptions of this problem. The first is this, the unbelief, the problem of unbelief is moral, not intellectual. It's a moral problem, not simply an intellectual problem. And then secondly, the problem of unbelief is lack of sight, not lack of of light. We'll look at both of these points this morning. And the first is found in verses 29 through 32. Verses 29 through 32 shows us that the problem of unbelief is moral, not intellectual. It says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. That's moral language. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to his generation. We tend to think about faith in Christ, belief in Christ, as something that's merely an intellectual step. It, that maybe it's just a matter of weighing the evidence and adding things up and then making a decision. And if we think about faith that way, then we might be tempted to think that unbelief Refusing to believe in Christ is, is like maybe getting a math problem wrong. You just made an error in your calculations. But Jesus says unbelief is a moral issue. Because look in verse 29. He calls them, because of their unbelief, he calls them a wicked, an evil generation. And he promises judgment for their rejection of him and his divine message. We see this judgment in verse 31 and 32. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus gives this condemnation in verse 29 through 30 that this generation is an evil generation. He's been preaching. He's been performing signs. And so the crowds are obviously increasing. Jesus is getting more and more attention, more and more pressure, more and more evaluation from the crowds. But the people who are hearing him, this is a mixed crowd. They are mixed in terms of their interest in Jesus. There's different stories going around. As we've seen, some people think that Jesus is Elijah or John the Baptist come back from the dead. Others say he's one of the other prophets. And some, as we saw last week, accuse him of casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. They're accusing him of wielding satanic power in order to perform these miracles. And still others, as we saw in verse 16 last week, others are seeking a sign from him. And it's, it's this response that, that Jesus is now focusing in on. Those who are seeking a sign, those who are demanding that he do more before they believe in him. 
This crowd is increasing, verse 29, but Jesus doesn't hesitate to challenge the crowd. He doesn't hesitate to confront them and to even condemn the unbelief that he perceives in them. He's not worried about what they think of him. He's not worried about what they might do to him. He doesn't feel any pressure to please them. He gives them the truth, even if it's a painful truth. They are an evil generation. Why does Jesus call them evil? Well, it's because they seek for a sign. This generation is an evil generation, Jesus says. It seeks for a sign. And at first glance, you might say, well, what's so wrong with that? What's so wrong with just wanting to know for sure that Jesus really is God's messenger, God's Messiah, God's son? Well, here's what's wrong with that demand for a sign. Three things. First of all, demanding a sign is a rejection of all that Jesus has already said and all that he has already done. Jesus hasn't been hiding under a rock. He's been publicly preaching. He's been publicly demonstrating that he is God in the flesh by his miracles. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed the lame and the blind and the lepers. He's cast out demons. He's fed thousands from one boy's lunch. He's walked on water. He's calmed the storm. He's turned water into wine. The list goes on and on. And so to demand Another sign at this point is a rejection of everything that he said and everything that he's done to this point. It means that they are unwilling to take at face value everything that Jesus has already offered. Secondly, they're effectively blaming Jesus for their unbelief. When they're demanding a sign from him as if he hasn't done enough, they're basically communicating that it's his fault, not theirs, if they persist in their unbelief. It's his fault, not theirs, that they have rejected his word. And third, they're making these proud demands on Jesus, expecting him, in this sort of twisted irony, expecting Jesus to respond to their word instead of humbly responding to his word. This is incredibly arrogant. And so because they're rejecting everything that he's already done, blaming him for their unbelief, and then demanding that he perform and do what they want him to do, Jesus calls them an evil generation. Their unbelief is not just an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. So this demand for a sign, it might seem less adversarial than the other accusation that he works miracles by the power of the devil, but it is no less wicked. And Jesus calls it out. He does not call them an ignorant generation. He doesn't call them a misled generation. He doesn't call them a confused generation or a mistaken generation. He calls them an evil generation because they are unwilling to believe. And he says, therefore, that no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. Jesus's audience would have been very familiar with the story of Jonah, and I'm sure most of you are. Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament sent to preach a message of repentance, a message of warning that judgment was coming to the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh. And the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they were a brutal and a hated people, and Jonah desperately wanted to see them burn. They were guilty of of gross atrocities, the kind that even the most egregious terrorists today can't really top. And Jonah wanted to see them crushed by the wrath of God. He did not want them to repent and receive mercy. In fact, Jonah, if you know the story, when God sent him to Nineveh, he tried to run. He tried to go to Tarshish on a boat. So God sent a great storm. 
Jonah knew that God wasn't going to let him get away with disobedience. So instead of trying to run, Jonah then tries to die. He says, throw me overboard and this storm will stop. So the sailors eventually do. But God would not let Jonah die. He sent a great fish to swallow him. And eventually, in the belly of that fish, Jonah said, fine, I I will do what you ask me to do, Lord. And he ended up going to Nineveh. The fish spit him out on on the shore. And he travels to Nineveh. He ends up preaching sort of a begrudging gospel message. And the people repented. There was a great demonstration of grief and humility among all the people of Nineveh. And they were spared God's judgment in Jonah's day. So that's the the background, and Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. So what is the sign of Jonah? Well, if you go back and read the book of Jonah, we don't find any record of Jonah performing any miracles. We don't find any examples of him performing a sign because Jonah himself was the sign. Jesus says this in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 12, 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus wasn't about to perform a trick for these people like a magician doing tricks on command, but there was indeed one more sign that was going to come. And it was undeniable proof of Christ's divine identity and the truthfulness and the authority of his message. And that sign would be the resurrection. Just as Jonah himself standing there, though he had been as good as dead, was assigned to the people of Nineveh, so Jesus, the risen Christ, actually back from the dead, is the sign that he is the Son of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the sign of Jonah. In John chapter 2, verse 18, in another story, certain Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They were confused because he's standing right there next to the actual temple in Jerusalem, but he was speaking about his body. And John says later, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The resurrection is the sign that attests to Jesus's divine identity and his, the truthfulness of his message, his word. The truth of the resurrection would become the chief sign, all the evidence that was needed to justify the spread of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. If you read through the the four gospels that we have in our New Testament, all four authors are careful to document that there's eyewitnesses of the empty tomb, eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. As the New Testament unfolds, it's the miracle of the resurrection. It's not any other miracle that the apostles make the center of their preaching. We don't have time today, but I had all these passages pulled out from the book of Acts to show in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 7 and going on and on and on that the apostles made the resurrection the central claim of their preaching. They didn't preach about the loaves and the fishes. They didn't preach about Jesus walking on water or the healings or the exorcisms, even how he raised others from the dead. They preached the risen Christ. In Paul's formulation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians, he underscores this truth of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.4 says Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Paul says, you go ask them. They were there. They saw it. Then he appeared to James, Paul continues. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is pointing to the resurrection of Jesus as this central truth of the gospel that's attested to by eyewitnesses. This is the evidence of the truth and authority of the gospel. But even this sign, even the resurrection of Jesus from the dead would not convince many. Why is that? It's because the chief reason for unbelief is not lack of evidence. That's not why people don't believe. The reason men do not believe is because of a hard heart, because people are unwilling to believe. In Luke chapter 16, as Jesus tells a story about two men who, who die and one goes into punishment, one goes into heaven, we see that the man who is in torment, he asks that, that, that Abraham would send someone back, send Lazarus, this deceased man, back from the dead to warn his brothers and the answer is, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, what's already written in the word of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In fact, Matthew tells us that this is exactly what happened when the religious leaders heard the report from the Roman soldiers stationed at the tomb. Remember, there was those two soldiers that were stationed there to guard the tomb. Well, the earthquake happened, the angel arrived, and these men fell down as though dead, and Jesus walked out of the grave. And they went back and they told the Pharisees, they told the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, and when they had tangible evidence of the resurrection, you know what those men did? They paid off the soldiers, bribed them, and spread a conspiracy theory about the disciples stealing the body. Unbelief is not because of lack of evidence. Why will this sign not convince them, the sign of Jonah? Because the problem is not deficient evidence. It's a depraved heart. People are inherently evil and unwilling to believe. This is a moral problem, not an intellectual one. And because it's a moral problem, therefore it deserves judgment. Jesus speaks of this judgment in verse 31, the condemnation by the queen of the south. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In essence, Jesus is saying, listen, you've seen enough. Just ask the queen of the south. This is a reference to the queen of Sheba, this story that we find in 1 Kings chapter 10. And she was from southern Arabia, what's modern day Yemen, about a thousand miles from Jerusalem. But she heard about King Solomon's extraordinary wisdom and she came to see the splendor of his kingdom. She heard about God's blessing on the king of Israel and she wanted to see for herself. And so this Gentile king or queen who traveled all the way from Southern Arabia, the truth compelled her. She responded to the truth. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon may have been Israel's wealthiest and most prosperous king, but his kingship pales in comparison to Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings. Solomon may have been the wisest man to ever live, but his wisdom was derivative. His wisdom was received. He got it from outside of himself. 
And his wisdom pales in comparison to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God incarnate. First Corinthians tells us that Jesus himself is the very wisdom of God. He doesn't acquire wisdom. He doesn't gain wisdom from outside himself. He is the wisdom of God incarnate. Colossians tells us that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's far greater than Solomon. Solomon was limited. Solomon was finite. Solomon was flawed. And he is far surpassed by the eternal and perfect son of God, Jesus Christ. Yet these Israelites, despite having something greater than Solomon right in their midst, they refuse to believe. And Jesus says, this ancient Gentile queen will rise up at the judgment and condemn them that they have no excuse. If that isn't a strong enough rebuke, Jesus continues in verse 32, condemnation by the men of Nineveh. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment as well with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, Jesus says, you've seen enough. You've seen plenty to believe. Just ask the men of Nineveh. Jonah had preached a warning of God's wrath. The people there had repented, but something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a weak and unstable prophet. He was foolish. He was rebellious. But Jesus never fails. Jesus never falters. He perfectly obeys the will of his father. He is a far greater prophet. Not just preaching God's word. Jesus embodies God's word. He is the word made flesh. Jonah had been released from the belly of the fish, but Jesus is released from the grave itself. It's a far greater miracle to be resurrected from the dead than it is to be spit up by a big fish. Jonah came preaching a message of repentance that these people might escape a coming localized judgment. But Jesus comes preaching a message of repentance in order to escape a universal and an eternal judgment. Something far greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is a greater prophet with a greater message attested to by an even greater sign. Yet they refuse to believe in him. And the pagan Gentiles of Nineveh who repented at Jonah's imperfect preaching, they will rise up and condemn this evil generation in the day of judgment. They should know better, and they have no excuse. Both of these examples, the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh, are really meant to pronounce shame upon these proud and unbelieving Jews that Jesus call, calls an evil generation. Jesus makes clear the problem of unbelief is not intellectual. The problem is moral. There's plenty of evidence, which means persisting in unbelief is to choose to reject God's revelation, which can only lead to judgment. But there's a second description of the human condition, the problem of unbelief. Not only is the problem of unbelief not intellectual, it's moral, but secondly, the problem of unbelief is lack of sight, not lack of of light. He's really teaching the, the same principle, but putting it in different terms. The problem of unbelief is lack of sight. It's not lack of light. Jesus says in verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. This may seem like a change of subject, but Jesus is really continuing to teach on the same idea. This is about seeing They wanted to see a sign. And Jesus says, well, let's talk about 
what it really means to see. And he takes up this metaphor of a lamp. He talks about that which produces light. A lamp is intended to light, to, to, to produce light, to be a source of light. And scripture frequently uses this metaphor of light. 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light is a metaphor for truth and purity and God is in himself light and in him there is no darkness. And because God is light, what comes from God is light. That means his word is also likened to light. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. God's word is a source of revelation, of truth, of illumination. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. God is light. God's word is light. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that God's son is light. In John 9, 5, Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. God is light. His word is light. God, the son, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And the gospel, the good news from God that we have recorded in the word of what Jesus himself has accomplished, the gospel itself is described as light. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul mentions the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. All of this is light. The revelation of God in himself, through his son, in his word, in the gospel, it is a source of truth, a source of light, like a lamp. It produces light. It shines. It radiates. It illuminates. But in order for light to have its full effect, it not only must have a source, but this light also must be seen. So Jesus switches from talking about that which produces light in verse 33 to that which perceives light in verse 34 and 36. He starts talking about our eyes. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Eyes are are not sources of light. They're receptacles for light. They're like windows. So when Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body, he's not talking about like a light in the sense of a flashlight, more so like a skylight, something that lets light in. It's not for emitting light. It's for admitting light. And Jesus compares the results of a healthy eye and what he calls a bad eye. And this evil generation has a bad Eye. A healthy eye receives the light. The bad eye does not. Again, Jesus here is pointing out that the deficiency, the problem, is not in the light. The lamp has been lit, and it's not been put in a cellar or under a basket. The lamp has been put on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus has come into the world. Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is proving who he is and the truthfulness of his word. By all of his miracles, the light is abundant. The problem is with their eye. Not with the production of light, but with the perception of light. Their rejection of Christ shows a problem with them. It's not a lack of light, it's a lack of sight. And Jesus gives a warning in verse 35. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. 
I sort of imagine Jesus at this point looking directly into the faces of this increasing crowd as more and more people are coming around. This is a warning. This is a caution. He says, be careful. Be careful. Lest the light in you, the supposed light, the knowledge that you think you have, what you think to be the truth in comparison with the truth that I'm preaching, lest the light in you actually be darkness. Such false light comes in a number of shades. Human wisdom, worldly philosophies, the lofty opinions of man, the proud judgments of the so-called experts, the false doctrines that reject the clear, clearly revealed truth of God's word. There are many people who think that they have the light, that they have the truth, that they are seeing clearly. But Jesus says that such light is man-sourced, it's man-centered, it's potentially even satanic. 2 Corinthians 11 warns us that the devil can appear as an angel of what? Of light, an angel of light. Such supposed light is void of Christ, it is void of his truth, and it is therefore actually darkness. There are many who claim to be enlightened. They claim to have found a truth that is better than Christ. Somehow, that maybe somehow they're smarter than the Bible. But listen to how Romans 1 describes such enlightened thinking. Romans 1 verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, get this, suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There's some stunning phrases in that passage. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Foolish hearts are darkened, suppressing the knowledge of the truth. Truth that God has made abundantly clear and accessible to all. This leads to judgment, and that's what Jesus is warning against. He says, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. But in contrast to this warning, there's also a word of invitation. Look in verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Yes, there are many who are filled with darkness. There are many who have a bad eye, who belong to this evil generation, who resist and resent the truth. But it's also possible to be filled with true light and to be holy or completely bright. This speaks to the sufficiency and the power of God's word. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.15 says, The sacred scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. It's possible to be in the light, to be filled with light. 
Listen to how Paul describes the amazing work of grace when God awakens a sinner and breathes new life into a dead soul. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, speaking of creation in Genesis 1, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Holy, bright. A whole body, a whole soul, a whole mind that is full of God's light. This describes salvation. This describes the person who receives Christ and trusts in his word and turns from their sin and embraces the promise of the gospel. When God does this work of grace and a sinner receives the word of Christ, the result is that we are made holy, bright, and the darkness is driven away. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is an invitation. The light is there. It's there to be seen. It's there to be received. And if you embrace Christ, if you follow after him, if you receive his word, you will have the light of life. What a contrast this is to the person filled with darkness. What a contrast as well, I think, if you go a little bit earlier in this passage to verse 25. Remember the person we talked about last week after the demonic presence has been driven away, the house is swept and put in order, but yet that life continues to be dominated by the powers of darkness. There's nothing stopping those spiritual adversaries from returning. But here we have a beautiful and hope-filled contrast, someone who is full of light. Through faith in Christ and believing his word, this is what God does in us. He fills us with his truth, fills us with his spirit, permeates every dark corner as we embrace all that he is for us. So what is this text teaching us today? Well, unbelief really evidences the problem of our human condition, doesn't it? Our fallen nature. The problem is that we in our sinful nature are both unwilling and unable to believe. And it's only the grace of God that can overcome the depravity of man. We need a miracle that's even greater than the miracle of creation. When God said, let there be light and spoke it into existence, we need God to do the same thing in us, to shine in our hearts the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So what's our response to this? Well, Two, two points of application with this will close. First of all, we need to recognize the true nature of unbelief. This is a, a doctrine that we need to believe. Total depravity. And with it, this idea of inability, which is, I think, an even better description of total depravity. This radical inability. Although this view of human nature runs against the grain of how modern man likes to think of himself, perhaps how we like to view ourselves, This is the portrait that the scriptures paint. This is what Jesus says about unbelief. This is the doctrine of total depravity. And it means that God cannot be faulted for a lack of evidence, for a lack of light. There will be no one who stands before God on judgment day and and is able to say, it's not fair you didn't give me enough evidence. It's not fair you didn't show me enough light. No one will be able to say that. And God will be perfectly just to judge anyone and everyone who rejects the light. 
Sometimes people say, if God would just, if God were real, then why doesn't he just show up and prove it to me? If God will just show me right now, then I'll believe. Maybe you've heard someone say that before. Or you've read about people saying that. Well, first of all, no, they wouldn't actually believe even if God literally showed up because he already did that. That's what the incarnation is. God showed up and he gave them a sign, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and people still overwhelmingly rejected him. So that's not actually true. When people say, if God were real, why doesn't he just show himself to me? He already did. And second of all, such a demand dismisses the word of God and it dismisses the work of God and Jesus Christ. And that sort of demand that God prove himself to us, it is wicked. Again, unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's not a lack of evidence. And no, ma no matter how much people may claim it is, it's a moral issue that men and women, young people, are often, by default, apart from God's grace, resistant to Christ. And God's judgment on that sort of unbelief is just. Friends, this is a biblical doctrine we need to believe. But there's also a point of encouragement. A second uh, application point is I hope that this morning you will consider, based on this text, the sufficiency and the adequacy of God's revelation. Think about how much God has shown. Think about the truth that he has given. Think about the ample and the abundant light that has been given to us. Because I think that will have two very specific uh, fruits in our life. And the first is contentment. When we consider everything that God has shown us, everything that God has revealed, all that he has manifested of himself through Jesus and through the word, it ought to produce contentment and gratitude in us. Rather than demanding more, rather than wishing for more, we ought to give thanks to God for everything that he's provided. We're often tempted to think that, you know what, seeing is believing. But I want you to listen to this passage from 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter is an apostle who saw it all. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He saw the empty tomb. He had breakfast with the resurre resurrected Christ. He saw it all. He even saw the transfiguration on top of the mountain as Jesus revealed the fullness of his glory. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter refers to this. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, verse 16. He says that we ourselves, in verse 18, heard this very voice born from heaven, the voice of God. They were with him on the holy mountain. But listen what, to what he says about scripture, in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, I heard the voice of God. I saw the glory of Christ. And we have something even more fully confirmed. The word of God. Friends, if we consider all that God has shown, all that he has given, the richness of his revelation to us, there ought to be a deep gratitude, not some sort of discontent wishing for more as if if we could only see something more than what God has already given then we could really believe then we would really have peace then we could really have joy J.C. Ryle's one of my favorite old-time dead pastors and he wrote this in his expository thoughts on Luke he says let us learn from our Lord's words before us that the highest privileges our souls can desire are close at hand and within our reach if we only believe 
We need not idly wish that we had lived near Capernaum or near Joseph's house at Nazareth. We need not dream of a deeper love and more thorough devotion if we had really pressed Christ's hand or heard Christ's voice or been numbered among Christ's relatives. All this could have done nothing more for us than simple faith can do now. I think that's wise counsel, pastoral counsel. It echoes the sentiments of John 20, 29, when Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's actually a danger for us as Christians when we become discontent with what God has revealed and we want more than that. The danger is you open yourself up to deception. One commentator said that that desire, that spiritual longing for more is the mother of all heresies. Think about how false religions like Islam got their start. A vision, supposed revelation, supposedly new light coming to Muhammad. Think about cults like Mormonism, Joseph Smith, a vision, an angel of light giving new doctrines and new teaching. That longing for more, that discontentment with what God has already revealed, it may not lead you to start a false religion. It may not lead you to start a cult, but it may lead you away from God's word. That hunger for an experiential Christianity that devalues the light God has given, that devalues the sign of the resurrection and looks in the clouds and looks in the shape of the cereal in your, in your bowl for some sign from God, that shows a discontentment with what God has given us. We ought to be content with everything that God has shown us when we believe in the sufficiency and the adequacy and the perfection of everything that God has shown us. Not only should that belief produce contentment, but it also ought to produce a confidence in us. It ought to produce confidence rather than be embarrassed about what we believe. When you go out there in the world and, and people like some of the headlines that we read earlier are shocked that you believe things that are basic Christian truths written in the Bible. Rather than be embarrassed about what we believe, rather than be sheepish about calling others to believe it too, we ought to be confident and courageous if we really believe in the sufficiency of God's word and the power of the gospel, that it is the power of God to everyone who believes. If we really believe in the truth of the resurrection, that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that ought to produce a confidence and a courage in us to not be embarrassed when we share the gospel, we're not apologizing because it's really hard to believe and there's not enough evidence and we're somehow asking people to close their eyes and take this blind leap of faith. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. This message is sufficient. There is ample light, ample evidence. And if people reject the truth and they do not believe, that doesn't say anything about a deficiency with the truth and it says everything about, about the condition of their heart. So let's join in with the apostles in telling the world that Jesus rose from the dead and salvation is now offered to all who will repent of their sin and believe in Christ's sacrifice in his resurrection. Human depravity is real. That's very clear in this text. Unbelief is simply the expression of mankind's natural hostility towards God. But the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, the light of God's word is able to bring the light of life into the soul of man. So may God continue to do his work 
of grace in opening the darkened eyes of sinners to behold his truth, to behold the glory of Christ. And may we rejoice in the light that God has shown us. Will you bow and pray with me as we conclude? Father, you've made it abundantly clear in your word that unbelief really shows something about our nature, that apart from your grace, we are blind, we are enslaved to sin, we are unwilling and unable to believe in the gospel. And I thank you for your sovereign grace that opens our eyes and creates light and life as you speak faith into our souls and awaken us from our spiritual slumber. Thank you for the light you've shown in our hearts. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for displaying your glory and your power through Jesus and his resurrection. And Lord, as we seek to share your truth with others, I pray that you'd help us to understand, to acknowledge uh, the nature of unbelief, that we would be content with the light that you have revealed, with the answers that are already given in scripture, with the sign that you have given the world through the resurrection of Jesus. Help us not to be embarrassed or sheepish about that, but to be courageous and confident. And Lord, we pray that you would use us. Uh, you, you say in your word that not only is Jesus the light of the world and the gospel is light, but you tell us that the church is to be a city set on a hill, a lamp that cannot be hidden, that we are called to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. So Lord, continue to shine your light into this dark world and use us to do it. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.